Well, let's dive in here. We are at Romans chapter 8, and we'll be picking up where we left off last week. We had done an overview of the entire chapter and then focused on the first four verses. Uh, we will be going through verse 17 today, which is what is on the handout for you. <clears throat> if it's any indication how rich this particular section of scripture is, I have this book, um, it's an exposition of chapter 8, verses 5 through 17. 33 sermons on this pat today's passage alone by Martin Lloyd-Jones. No, I did not read every word. I'm, I'm obsessive, but not compulsive. Uh, <laughs> did he all these at the same time, or were they scattered over? They were scattered over one year. It took him one year, 33 different lessons on Friday nights when he preached. He preached actually through all of Romans, I think over 12 years on Friday nights, and that's the multi-book set of Martin Lloyd-Jones. And I'll be reading from this today a couple, time, couple places that uh, are very poignant. <clears throat> this is an incredibly rich passage. And I'll tell you, it brought tears to my eyes today when we observed our baptisms of these um, young people. In particular, it was Elizabeth Ramsey's uh, quick testimony because I don't know if you picked up on it, but I certainly did since I'm about ready to teach it. She was quoting from Romans chapter eight, verses five through eight, when she was talking about, I no longer live under the flesh, but live under the spirit. And I was just going, holy smoke. Why do I even need to teach? We have the sermon right here. <laughs> um, and. And then we had another one of the uh, baptizer, baptized mentioned Romans 7. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will bring, you know, release me from this body of death. <laughs> this is what we've been focusing on. And to hear it expressed from such young voices and young faces, it's really quite encouraging. Um, but, as I like to do, and we're not going to read the whole passage together. In fact, today I just want us to read out loud together verses 5 through 8, just so that we have a common uh, starting point. Starting with verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For those to set the mind on the flesh is death. To set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Did I miss a verse in my printout? I'm seeing consulting here. Oh, I see. Yeah, it's because it's in the paragraph. And it changes the... Uh, remember, paragraphs are not inspired by God. Uh, we use them for our 
help, although sometimes there are thought connections that are made. Now, when you look at this passage, there is uh, there are four words that jumped out at me. And if you were to take your pen or pencil, you can make note of them yourself. Um, the first is the word for. You see how many times it's used just in the verses we read? Three times. Verses 5, 6, and 7. It's also the beginning of verse 2 and the beginning of verse 3. And the beginning of verse 13. And the beginning of verse 14 and 15. Eight times. In this passage, chapters 1 to 17, you have the sentences begin with four. Yeah. Isn't it just a connection? Uh, it's sort of like a list to say, continue the thought? Uh, the use of the word for would be similar to the word therefore. So he's making a logical progression. He's saying statement for, statement for. So each is a step. If you were to you know, take a few paces back and look at it, you can almost see him building his argument, logically, philosophically. <clears throat> it's, you know, I've, I've read complete word studies on the word for, which are kind of uh, exhaustive. Um, and I'm not too sure how much importance we put in it, other than to say structurally, it's fascinating to watch this, um, this breakdown. And we're gonna, slip you the page too. We're in verse 5 of chapter 8. The second word that is very important here, and it's important throughout chapter 8, is the word flesh. It is the Greek word sarx. Now, the Greek word sarx is used 147 times in the New Testament. 91 of them are used by Paul, and almost 20% of them are used in this chapter. So there has to be some definition, because I will tell you, I read some rather intriguing interpretations of this chapter based on their understanding of this word. So, just in our discussion here, I'll ask the class. Obviously, I have the right answers, but you have to come up with them <laughs> off the top of your head. What are different meanings of the word flesh? What would be the most obvious one? Yeah, your flesh, your epidermis, the, the bag in which your bones sit. Okay, that's the flesh. And didn't Paul say, say he had a thorn in the flesh? And it's the word Sarks. It also can mean the whole body. And that's used all the time in the New Testament when they're talking about the body of Christ is the sarks. So why doesn't the English Bible translate it as flesh? Because in the context it doesn't fit. The Bible translators are consistently faced with this issue where 
one word might have multiple meanings in Greek, we don't have that same multiple meanings in English or vice versa. In fact, I was reading one of, one of the commentators, he said he used to criticize Bible translations, especially in Romans chapter eight for translating Sarks as flesh until he was put on a translation committee for a, a new Bible translation being done and he realized, wow, I was sure ignorant and all full of myself. I had no idea how difficult this particular interpretation can mean. It can also mean human. It's translated as human sometimes, just as a, a humanity issue. But here, you can read it as sin nature. Now you might say, but isn't that an interpretation? Well, of course it is. But if you look into the context and what Paul is writing about, it actually makes sense that he would translate it this way. Uh, for many of us who, you know, either grew up in the church or at Bible study libraries and whatnot, in past years we would rely on Vine's Expository Dictionary of New Testament, which was a wonderful, wonderful tool. It's very old and outdated now. This is the one that you would buy to replace it. It's Mounce's Complete Expository Dictionary of the Old and New Testament. Yeah, this thing is... 1,400 pages long. They actually print it on Bible paper. It's the thin Bible paper, otherwise this thing would be so thick. And he takes the English word, then shows either the Hebrew or the Greek word behind it, and then discusses it. He ends up with a definition here of Sarks with this statement, which I thought was very helpful. Paul's theological usage of sarks indicates that the flesh is a willing instrument of sin. This sense is observed especially in Romans, where sarks denotes humanity encompassed by the power of sin as demonstrated in self-sufficient independence from God. Therefore, is a sphere of activity demarcated by sin over against the sphere of God's spirit. Thus, in many cases, you can use the phrase sin nature instead of flesh. So, look at your passage, verses 5 through 8, and I'm going to read it using the word sin nature. For those who live according to the sin nature set their minds on the things of the sin nature. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the sin nature is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the sin nature is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot, for those who are in the sin nature cannot please God. Doesn't that make a little more sense than our thinking, because our first reaction is to think, oh, flesh. Or you think of other passages which talk about um, the denial of the lusts of the flesh. 
and suddenly you think this passage is all about sex. No, 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 that isn't what he's saying. He's talking about our embedded propensity to sin, which is why we need Christ. This is why we need the Spirit. This is why Christ died to save us from the sins that are within us. Here's a word picture. We were just talking about word pictures. <clears throat> I actually have it in my notes. Word picture. And you said it earlier. It's like, oh, I've got a word picture. This is going to be great. Now, all metaphors or word pictures break down, but just kind of roll with it for a minute. When we moved into our home, which we still live in, I don't remember how many years later it was, but we had termites. Well, how, how was it two years? About two years after we had moved in, suddenly these little dirt tunnels started coming out of the ceilings. We're going, huh, that's weird. Just knock it off. Not even knowing what it is. And then another one starts to appear, and another one going, wait, what? something's going on here. And then we realize, in our ignorance, that we had termites in the house that were there when we bought it, or decided they would decide that we were chewy. Um, discovered that where they were coming in was not from outside, they were coming in from underneath on the pad that the bathtub sits on because that's the only part of the foundation that is open. The rest is concrete laid over the dirt. They put the bathtub on the dirt and they come up through the dirt, make their way up through the walls and then start chewing the place apart. If you don't treat it, you don't see it. You can repaint your ceilings. You can put in new carpet. You can do whatever you want. And then your house falls down. And you wonder, how did that happen? The sin nature are like the termites. They're chewing away at the very foundation of who you are. Now, obviously that metaphor doesn't work because we call it an eradicator, or whatever you call them. They come in. They cut a hole in the, back, in the back of a closet to get to that bathtub pad, treated it, and then, you know, did all the stuff around it, and now it's protected, and has been ever since. But maybe there's an even better household metaphor. Not termites, but mold. I don't know if you know any people or have friends whose houses have been infested by that black mold that gets inside the walls and you can't smell it, you can't see it, it's just everybody gets sick until it's discovered and ultimately renders the house unlivable. They either have to knock it down and rebuild it or tear out all the walls and fumigate. It's so pervasive and insidious and you don't even know you're sick until you're so sick you can't move. Isn't that what sin does in us? We may not even realize how insidious or how it's working its way into our, the fabric of who we are. Well, it's already there because we are born with it. It's the sin nature. It's what humanity is. And there's only one way, and that is to completely change the nature of that body. Yeah. 
Remember Sandy's comment last week about condemned? Yep. Their a house is condemned, exactly. Because it's unlivable. It's deadly. It's dead. And it causes death. It's dead. And it causes death. Yeah. Isn't that what the flesh? If you think about what he's trying to say, because he's trying to contrast it. But the other word that's interesting here is the word mind. Notice the word mind is used five times in this passage. He's trying to make a point. But here's where you get into the Greek again. It's interesting. There's a couple different words for the word mind in the Greek. There's the common one is nous, N-O-U-S. That means your brain. It's your intellect, your even it can even mean your understanding. But that is not the word here. Anywhere in this passage, in Romans 8, he never uses noose. He uses, uh, I get the right spelling here, phroneo. P-H-R-O-N-E long O. Phroneo. If you think about it, what's that phrenology where you... You know, you can feel the bumps on the head. Um, it's somewhat related, <laughs> related to the head. But the word phroneo means to think. Not just that you have intellect, but how you think, your mindset. Which is why in the ESV, it has set their minds set their mind, set the mind, for the mind that is set. That's why it's translated this way. It's talking about the mindset, not just simply the act of having a brain and having understanding, but to have a mindset that's completely different. In Mark 8.33, and I did not know this until this week as I was studying this, in Mark 8:33, Jesus is foretelling his death and his resurrection. And Peter wasn't being helpful. So turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your phroneo on the things of God, but on the things of man. You are not having your mindset on God. Your mindset is of the flesh, to use today's term. You go over to Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. You have, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have this phroneo, this mindset, this way of thinking. Change how you think. The famous passage in Romans 12, 1 and 2. To transform by the renewing of your phroneo. Not your thinking process, but how you think. 
and what you are focusing on. So, <clears throat> Ray Pritchard, great preacher, has a wonderful word picture, <laughs> again, and guess what, Chuck, it's about cars. <laughs> I mean, the entire lesson today is for you. No. <laughs> Sorry. But I just, as I was coming across, I went, oh, I hope Chuck's there, because this is going to be perfect. Okay. He asked the question, how does the Holy Spirit work in your life? And someone said, is that's the difference between being in a car or on an elevated train. And I thought, not necessarily always the elevated train, but even think of our light rail. A car runs on the principle of storage. You put gas in the tank and you drive it. You burn the gas and when you're out of gas, you stop and you get more gas. And you run it again and you burn it and then you get more gas. And you keep on driving until you run out and you're constantly running and stopping, running and stopping, filling and refilling. On the other hand, the electric train or the elevator train runs on contact. You have the two rails upon which the car sits and a third rail in the middle, or in our light rail, it's the little wires above that the train is connected to. And what it keeps, what keeps the train going? As long as the train stays in contact with that third rail, it will go and go and go and go and never stop. Too many people think that walking with the Holy Spirit is like riding in a car. You get filled with the Holy Spirit and then you get run down and you got to go get another filling. And that church is your filling station. You get filled up, you get run down. You get filled up, you get run down. And so they're always up and down, up and down, filled, emptied, filled, emptied. And that's not the Christian life of the New Testament. The New Testament teaches us that the Holy Spirit is always there. And our responsibility is stay in contact with it. When we stay in contact with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit continuously provides the power for an effective Christian life. What an incredible picture. So when you have this contrast between the flesh and the mind and the spirit, because the spirit is used three times in this passage. It's the word pneuma, which we're familiar with, and it's speaking specifically about the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that guides and indwells every believer. Even 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10 says, the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So there becomes this interesting discussion in theological circles, pastoral circles, expository circles. You have those who believe and those who don't believe, but then there's this middle category, the carnal Christian. And that's because in King James Version, chapter six talks about those who are carnally minded. And we came up, they came up with this idea that there's some who are kind of in the middle. They're believers, but they act like they're not. And so you have this fascinating 
conversation among many of them saying, um, no, you're either in the spirit or you're not. Now, here's the problem. Lisa and I were talking about this last night at dinner because I brought this up and I said, the problem is, is we can turn that conversation into legalism where I know who the Christians are because they act the way I think they should act. They believe the way I believe. And, you know, they did that means they're not a Christian. Well, I am now becoming that judge. That's not for me necessarily to judge. I can point it out. I can confront the behavior. But if I let that thought process sneak its way into my mind, guess what? I am no longer setting my mind on things in the Spirit. We have to be really careful. At the same time, when there is sin in someone's life, it is beholden, I think, on our part to point it out. And you know, are you sure you should be doing that? That doesn't seem to be following the biblical model. Maybe we need to talk about it. And there's ways of, even biblical ways of confronting uh, that, where you have the individual, then two or more go, and then the church comes and there becomes more of this, the church discipline issue comes up. But it's tough when we get in this middle place because you would have those who, I'll just throw the name out because it's easy, but the Bob Jones mentality, you know, don't, don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with girls that do. Um, that, that mentality, in fact, I even have a couple uh, booklets um, from John R. Rice from the 30s, and I have them, and it talks about how women wear their hair. And it's obviously not Christian. Okay. That's interesting. They um, would have a field day. <laughs> they're probably turning in their grave. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, you know, you have those who would say, but what's proper decorum? What's, what's God-honoring? Um, as I... I still remember talking with one of our daughters with a, 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 a particular fashion choice that they were contemplating. I said, what are you trying to attract? I knew exactly what I knew what meant. I said, do you understand what is on the other side? And there was no, I had no idea. So, Martin Lloyd-Jones, this is our resident preacher here, he has an interesting story about the power of the gospel to those who are willing to hear it. Talks about in London, two great men, William Wilberforce, who we may know the name because of his efforts in abolishing slavery in England. He was the leader of the movement for the abolition of slavery and William Pitt the Younger who was one time prime minister. They were both brilliant men, both politicians, and both very good friends. 
But Wilberforce was converted, and William Pitt, like so many others, was a formal Christian. He only went because it was what you did. Wilberforce was very concerned about his friend. He loved him as a man, was very concerned about his soul. He was anxious that Pitt would go to him and listen to a certain preacher, a clergyman by the name of Richard Cecil. Cecil was a great evangelist. Wilberforce loved his ministry and was always trying to persuade Pitt to go with him to listen. At long last, William Pitt agreed. Wilberforce was delighted. They went together to the service and Richard Cecil was at his absolute best, preaching in a spirited, elevated and exalted manner. Wilberforce was enjoying himself and felt lifted up into the very heavens. He couldn't imagine anything better, anything more enjoyable, anything more wonderful. And he kept wondering what was happening to his friend, William Pitt, the Prime Minister. Well, after the service, on the way out, Pitt turned to Wilberforce and said, you know, Wilberforce, I didn't have the slightest idea what that man was talking about. Wow. As a man can be tone deaf to music, all who are not Christians are tone deaf to the spiritual. That which was ravishing to the mind and heart of Wilberforce conveyed nothing to Pitt. He was bored. He couldn't follow it. He couldn't understand it. He didn't know what it was about. A man of great brilliance, great culture, great intellectual ability, but none of that helps. For as 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit, for they are foolish. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. That's where the Holy Spirit comes in and has to work on that person's heart and their mind. Richard Cecil might as well have been preaching to a dead man, according to today's passage. The dead cannot appreciate these things, and neither could William Pitt. And he confessed it. There are such people. They come to a place of worship, they listen to things that ravish the hearts of believers, and they see nothing at all. There are many such people in churches now. They want card game drives and dances, entertainments and socials, and meeting one another socially because they are not alive to spiritual things. They're dead, dead to God, dead to, the, dead to Lord Jesus Christ, dead to the realm of the spiritual and spiritual realities, dead to their own soul and spirit and their everlasting and eternal interests. And they never think about it. Now that I've listed your spirits, you look at what Paul is doing here is contrasting the mindset of the spirit, the, the sin nature against the mindset of the spirit. They are such opposites. And to make it even more clear, he puts in verse 7, for the mindset that is set on the sin nature is hostile to God. Not just uncaring, they're hostile. James 4.4 4 says, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? We see this frequently, and it's so 
painful to watch, especially now in social media and the, the widespread nature of the media itself puts it in front of us, either in television or on our devices or whatever, of those who are so angry about anything related to Christ. You mentioned Jesus Christ as like, heck with you. We're not, you're not even in the conversation anymore. You're irrelevant and uncaring. So I was looking at one of the, uh, one, an old speech that I gave the other day. I was looking through some of the material and I came across a quote from a journalist in a newspaper that was talking about Christianity. Not in a friendly manner. <clears throat> Basically derisive uh, and said, look, and I, I don't have the quote here, I'm just going to uh, editorialize it. Christianity is such that it should be forgotten, and if you ever run across it, it should be mocked with all vim and vigor. I'm reading this going, whoa, uh, that pretty blatant. Except it was written in 1832 in America. That was the year the Great Awakening broke out. When you had William Wilberforce and John, not William Wilberforce, you had um, Jonathan Edwards, John Wesley, George Whitfield taking the gospel into the highways and byways and thousands of people came to Christ and changed the course of America's history in an environment that the media was saying, mock it, it's irrelevant. And that was in a quote-unquote churched society. Today, we are an unchurched society and one would say, if we have any modicum of hope in us, the field is rather ripe for a harvest. And that's what we, something we can pray for when we see passages like this that are so hard, really. And yet, in the life of the Spirit, we have a new mind. It is... It is transformed. It is changed. We see things differently. We view things differently. And so the question constantly comes up, and we dealt with this a couple weeks back, when the idea of if you're a Christian, can you still struggle with sin? And of course you can. And as I wrote here, because before you were a Christian, it wasn't a struggle. It was your disposition. You were dominated by it. And now, you are of a mindset of the Spirit, and you go, oh, fooey. Now you have something that you can address because you're made aware of it by the power of the Spirit. We have the Spirit indwelling in, in Galatians 5.16. We walk in the Spirit and do not fulfill the desires of the flesh. So verses 9 to 11, <clears throat> verses 9 to 11, you want to look at another benefit of the spirit life is that we have a new nature. 
So we've been talking about the sin nature, but now he's going to talk how things are changed. Note, look very carefully. In verses 1 through 8, primarily 5 through 8, he's talking about those. Those who. What's the first word in verse 9? You. It changes. Paul's message in those first verses are kind of outward, saying, you know, we're looking at, at the big picture, which we can apply to ourselves, yes. But then he stops, and it's almost like he pauses and points a finger, virtually, because he's writing a letter to people he's never met. Uh, he says, you, however, because you are in the Spirit, you, however, are not in the flesh, not in the sin nature, but in the Spirit. In fact, the Spirit of God lives in you, dwells in you. Let's take our house metaphor. It's a house without mold, because <laughs> he's dwelling in it. It's the perfect house. In fact, I, I was trying to think of the metaphor because it breaks down. For the simple fact is we think, oh yeah, well, I make room for Christ. He has this nice special little room in my heart. No, he's the whole house. Because if you just give him a little sliver of it, you're not going to have the life of Christ that is intended. The idea is to turn it all over to him. All of it. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if, oh, I don't like words like if in the middle of Paul. But if Christ is in you, and I, I wrote on my margin, if, question mark, question mark, exclamation point, underline, underline, if, oh my goodness. And it reminded me of 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are not, you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize that this is about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail that test? So, good old Martin Lloyd-Jones. Let's get to page 58. It means that the Christian is in a new realm. He was living before in the realm of the flesh. He is now living in the realm of the Spirit. The Spirit is controlling him and leading him. He's walking in the Spirit. He is walking after the Spirit. This is the great and profound change that takes place at conversion. It's not that someone just changes their beliefs. No. They were in the realm of flesh and now in the realm of the spirit. They were dominated by the flesh before and governed by it. As Paul puts it in Ephesians 2.2, we walked after the course of the world. But the Christian, though he is in the world, does not walk after the course of this world. He's now in a realm which is governed and controlled and dominated by the spirit. He is in the spirit. This is that new nature the spirit life. 
But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And notice the Trinity in verses 9 and 10. You have God, Christ, and Spirit all together at work in you, dwelling in you in its fullness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. This is an explicit promise of the resurrection. Your resurrection. Christ is already raised. But is your resurrection, which Paul has addressed before, if you want to look at those verses, we, we study them in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 49 and 53. And later, when we study Philippians, Philippians 3, 20 and, uh, 3, verse 20 and 21, talk about the promise of this resurrection. Verse 12. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors. Now, I would prefer to use a different word there, just so that we can understand it. Now, therefore, we have an obligation. It's a weaker word, I understand it theologically, but I think sometimes we don't understand the word debtor or debts. But we are debtors, not to the flesh, not to the sin nature, to live according to the sin nature, for if you live according to the sin nature, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. To mortify the sin, to put it to death. This goes back to John Owen's great book on the mortification of sin in believers. Um, John MacArthur and, uh, was quoting Martin Lloyd-Jones again. Not in this book, but in another place. Um, he said it is here for the first time in this chapter that we've come to the realm of practical application all we've had up to this point has been a general description of the Christian his character his position but now the apostle has really come explicitly to the doctrine of sanctification here we are told exactly how in practice the Christian becomes sanctified or to state it differently we are told in detail and in practice how the Christian is to wage the battle against sin, and that is to put it to death. It is to destroy it in your life. MacArthur writes, Paul does not promise immediate freedom from sin's harassment. He doesn't describe a crisis moment sanctification where the believer is suddenly and immediately made perfect. He doesn't tell the Romans to let go and let God to take over while they sit idle. He doesn't suggest that there's a turning point decision that will solve the matter once and for all. On the contrary, he speaks of the continuous struggle with sin where we are persistently, perpetually putting to death the deeds of the body. And this language is often misunderstood. Paul is not calling for a life of self-flagellation. He's not saying go in a corner and whip yourself. 
he's saying, or he's, say, he's not saying believers should starve themselves or literally torture their bodies or deprive themselves of basic needs. He's not telling them to mutilate themselves or live monastic lives or anything of the sort. The mortification Paul just speaks of has nothing to do with external self-punishment. It's a spiritual process accomplished by the Spirit, and that's in this verse. It's put to death if by the Spirit. Paul is describing a way of life where we seek to throttle sin and crush it from our life and sap it of its strength, rooting it out and depriving it of its influence. That is what it means to mortify sin. John Murray, in his commentary on Romans, writes, The believer's once for all death to the law of sin does not free him from this necessity of mortifying it in his members. It makes it necessary and possible. This is where I think some Christians think that it's so overwhelming, the sin nature is too much, I can never overcome it. Well, no, you can't. It's quite simple. It's not something you do. But make yourself aware of it, identify it, confess it, lay it before Christ, and Christ in His Spirit can then help you to overcome it. Because if you try to do it yourself, you will fail. And the last passage. <clears throat> it's, it's really interesting to read this passage. It's all about adoption and being adopted and becoming children of God. Um, you may or may not remember, because it's been four years, has it really been that long, since we were in Galatians and we talked about adoption in the Roman world, that in the Roman world they didn't adopt children because children died. They adopted adults. They adopted teenagers. They adopted their replacement or their heirs. You have the litany Julius Caesar adopted Augustus. Augustus Caesar adopted Tiberius. Tiberius Caesar adopted Claudius. Claudius Caesar adopted Caligula. Caligula Caesar adopted Nero. Each of them had their own progeny, but they were doofus boys. They were idiots. They just did not understand. They were not strong. They had no character, and they went out and Oh, that guy, he's going to be my heir. And they adopted them and made them their replacement as Caesar, as emperor. The Senate did it all the time. Those seats were not elected. They were appointed. And they would, they would find their replacement. When they did... Let's say, I'm adopting you from him. I would go to you and say, I want him. And you're like, I then pay off all of your debts. You are debt free for the rest of your life. If you give me him, then he becomes my son. 
and has all the rights and privileges of being my son. It takes my name. Their past is gone. They're now adopted as sons or as children. So when Paul talks about adoption, we tend in our society put our current Western understanding of adoption into that, which is a fine definition. But our modern understanding of adoption is more of compassion, not of, um, oh, how do you put it, economics, of uh, you know, finding your, your, your perfect replacement. Very different mentality. So when Paul writes about this here, you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You received the spirit of adoption as sons. And the people in Rome are going, whoa, you mean like Caesar? They know that story. They live in it. It would, it would be like President Bush having his son become president. Oh, wait, that happened. But it wasn't through this methodology. But it would be like Biden having Hunter become the president. Everyone just went. <laughs> but that's how it worked back then. But that situation, you probably, yeah, probably not the best choice. Let's go find someone else who's better suited for the role. And I have enough money and wherewithal, and I'll pay off the debts and make them my son. That's the picture here. And it says here, the spirit of adoption is sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Meaning, you become the family of God. This is mind-blowing to the audience. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit. That's a legal term, standing in front of a judge, being the expert witness that we are children of God. So if anyone asks, Jesus says, oh yeah. Yeah, He's part of the family. I made sure of it. And how did I make sure of it? I died on the cross so that He could be that. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Oh, hooray. Thank you for that last half of that verse, um, <clears throat> which we actually will bring up next week because it keys into the next section in verses 18 and following. <coughs> but look at this. The benefits of the life of the Spirit, we're led by the Spirit. We're not groping blindly. We have freedom from fear. We are no longer going to fall back into any sort of fear life. We can call God Father. We have someone, the Spirit Himself, bearing witness with unassailable credentials that assures us the declaration that we are heirs. So when they have to adjudicate the estate, there's no question of who gets it. And for those of us who have ever worked in any estate world, 
the, if it's not real clear, it can get very messy if there's not a, a clear documentation. But here, it's clear. You, me, we receive the benefits of being in the family of God. You kind of go back and you look at this extraordinary exposition, starting with there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then he starts contrasting this life of the flesh against the life of the Spirit. You want to say, is there any argument? Why would anyone turn this down? Because at the very end, he says, oh, and by the way, you get all the riches of heaven. You want any of this? Listen to what I'm saying. And it's because it's a free gift. You don't have to do anything to get it. What an extraordinary gospel. What an extraordinary gift we've been given. We've been given a new mindset. We've been given a new nature. And we have a new identity. All because of God's love for us in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, again, thank you for the chance to roll through those extraordinary words and to be reminded again and again and yet again what a gift we have to be standing here to be being able to talk about you to worship you to love you and know that we have your gift of the spirit in us therefore let us walk worthy in jesus name amen